Good morning. My name is Claire Suara, and I'm here to introduce Professor Bobby Meyer Lee. Bobby is an associate professor of English here at GC and has been since 2004. He's a graduate of Williams College, New York University, and Yale. The occasion of this speech is the recent publication of his book, Poets in Power, From Chaucer to Wyatt. This summer, I have the honor of working with Bobby through the Maple Scholars Program, focusing on masculine gender construction in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. I'm excited about this opportunity because I think it's a wildly interesting topic, but also because Bobby's the kind of teacher who can make extremely difficult and complex readings, for example, anything in Middle English, very accessible. For those of you who are signing up for classes next spring and have three extra credits you just don't really know what to do with, I recommend signing up for English 300 Critical Theory and Practice with Bobby. It just might change your life. So here's Bobby. title. Thank you, Claire. And I want to thank everybody here. Wow, look at that. All these people um, for coming here today, even if you didn't have a choice. I appreciate it. Um, I guess that this assembly constitutes one of the largest audiences ever for a presentation on 15th century English poetry. <laughs> a period of poetry which has been characterized as the undusted top shelf in an obscure back room of a seldom visited shabby looking house in a remote province of a backward country. As one account of literary history has put it, and this is a quote, after this inexplicably, inexplicably rich harvest of literary genius, that is the preceding age of Geoffrey Chaucer, the 15th century is a sad, barren period. It was, in other words, the wasteland one must cross to get from the genius of Chaucer to the fertile period of the English Renaissance. Perhaps now you're thinking, what sort of self-loathing must Bobby possess to have dedicated, as he has done, over 10 years to the study of this wasteland? Or alternatively, those of you who have suffered through a doctoral dissertation, I think there's some of you out here, uh, maybe nodding your head in recognition of the results of a desperate search for a dissertation topic that hasn't already been farmed to the point of exhaustion. These surmises admittedly possess some truth, Yet, I like to think that it was a, it was more, uh, I was more powerfully drawn to the 15th century by the suspicion that the too easily dismissive and categorical accounts of the period might be hiding something, uh, as such accounts of history so often are. In repressing a full century of literary production, I wondered what are we really repressing? In particular, what sort of continuities between then and now might exist, which we would just as soon like to forget. As I discovered, far from being a wasteland of mere pale imitation and nostalgia as it's accused of being, the 15th century witnessed the birth of a tradition of English poetry that reaches an unbroken succession to the present. Moreover, the invention of this tradition was in large part a response to a question that continues to be asked about poetry, which is, why does it matter? Is poetry merely a product for private consumption to be enjoyed like a big mug, mug of rich, dark coffee, sitting beside the fire, and this is where I, I have my prop to drink coffee, <laughs> sitting beside the fire after shoveling a slush-filled sidewalk? Or does it have some truth to tell to the gathered public, a truth that can make a difference in the world outside the narrow confines of the realms of poets, 
critics and professors. These latter, of course, are exactly the ones who would answer this question in the affirmative, but on what basis can they do so? Let's start to explore these questions with an image from the 20th rather than the 15th century. That image there. I find this image so strikingly iconographic um, that I feel as, as if I remember the event that it depicts, but I don't think I do since I was born a couple years after it happened. Um, the photograph records the moment in John F. Kennedy's inauguration when Robert F Frost got up to read a poem he had written especially for the occasion. The combination of brilliant sunshine and bitter cold prevented the 86-year-old from reading his handwritten copy, and so instead he recited another of his poems from memory. On this stage, poetry was plainly conceived as possessing not merely a private but also a public value. And as this image suggests, the nature of that value rests on the nature of the relation between the two key figures of poet and president. Frost, already then the recipient of four Pulitzer Prizes and countless honorary degrees, could hardly be considered a sycophantic celebrant, a JFK groupie. He was then and had been for many years America's most revered poet, and as such, he carried an authority of his own. In part, this authority was simply that of a widely known author, and yet a poet, especially a brooding philosophical poet such as Frost, is not just another author, not just, say, Stephen King, whose presence at an inauguration would be scary. <laughs> Frost's writing, like that of most poets, makes implicit and often explicit claims to timelessness. It claims to reach through or beyond the historical contingencies of the moment of inspiration, of writing or recitation, to articulate an insight or wisdom that seems somehow universal or permanent. Frost's authority over the realm, over this realm of the timeless, emphasized here especially by the poet's age, underlies the logic of his participation in this event. There is nothing more manifestly fraught with historical contingency than the transfer of political power. And yet the president-elect desperately wants to understand this moment and to have it understood as not merely contingent, but as fulfilling destiny, as furthering a plan that itself stands above history. In this regard, the poet who commands the realm of the timeless perhaps more than any other secular figure has the authority and power to create this understanding with palpable authenticity, to raise the event to the level of myth, to distill the deeper, more permanent meaning of the occasion. That the Kennedys, at least, held this ability in high regard is evident not only by Frost's invitation uh, to the inauguration, but also by the note that Jacqueline Kennedy wrote on the back of the typed copy of the poem Frost failed to read. For Jack, she scrawled in pencil, first thing I had framed to be put in your office, first thing to be hung there. In this image, then, Frost plays the role of visiting dignitary from the realm of timeless poetic wisdom and yet just as in the case of an actual visiting dignitary, the recognition that he bestows upon the president's political authority depends upon his own authority being recognized by the president. Frost, no matter how many honors he had earned, was not, worthy, was not a worthy enough public figure to inaugurate a president until JFK's invitation made him so. Frost could not demonstrate his power to transform an historically contingent political event into timeless myth unless provided by the workings of political power, the forum to do so. More simply put, if Frost is honoring Kennedy, so is Kennedy honoring Frost. If Frost helps to, to depict the Kennedy as the second coming of King Arthur, 
then Kennedy helps to ensure that Frost is perceived as the spokesman for the soul of the nation, that is, as poet laureate in the most idealized sense of the role. These two figures, political leader and poet laureate, are thus mutually legitimating. The public value of poetry is both confirming of and confirmed by political power. Revealingly, at the conclusion of the poem Frost intended to recite, and I'll give you those words there, um, he imagines the glory of a next Augustan age, which will be a golden age of poetry and power of which this noonday is the beginning hour. By Augustan, Frost means foremost the era of Augustus Caesar, and the friendly relations between poetry and power epitomized by the Aeneid, Virgil's great epic poem, an encomium to Caesar. This is exactly the same fantasy invoked by the Italian, Italian poet Francis Petrarch in the year 1341, when in an event that some claims heralds the beginning of the European Renaissance, he was crowned at Rome as poet laureate. And here is an image of that moment. Um, in this image, the nature of the relation between the president and the poet, uh, the nature of the relation between the observing king and the orating poet are essentially the same as that between president and poet in the Frost photograph, despite the two being separated by some 620 years. This sort of relation between poetry and, power, and political power, in other words, goes all the way back, as Frost himself suggests in his inauguration poem. But Petrarch wrote in Latin and Ita in, in Italian and had little influence on English poetry until the 16th century, at which point the English poetic tradition had already been in place for a, a hundred years or so. What then were the relations of poetry and power at the beginning of this tradition? Let's consider this rather different image. With, uh, this depicts one of Chaucer's self-acknowledged uh, 15th century disciples, Thomas Hockleave, presenting a book of poetry to Prince Hal, who not longer after this illustration was produced, ascended to the throne as Henry V of England. Hockleave, rather than appearing like Frost and Petrarch as orating poet flanked by a political ruler, is instead groveling before the ruler, humbly bringing him a gift. Interestingly, however, this illustration appears in the very book that Hockleave is presenting to the prince, a book which contains a single long poem carrying the title, The Regiment of Princes. The illustration isn't positioned as the frontispiece where one might expect it, but rather occurs near the middle of the poem as part of the introduction to the poem's second and final section, which contains some 2,500 lines of advice on how the prince, when he becomes king, ought to rule and generally comport himself. This advice, while taken from authoritative sources, is given in Hockley's first-person voice, and hence this image, despite Hockley's posture, communicates something rather more than humility. It depicts Hockley presenting to the heir to the throne a book of his own composition, possessing authoritative wisdom, wisdom that by implication the prince lacks. In short, it tells the prince what to do and including this illustration in the very place where the advice to the prince begins, Hockleave ensures that the authority of that advice will be closely associated with his own person and conceived of as related to but different from political power. In many ways, then, 
this image is not so different from that of Petrarch's Laureation Oration or Frost's inaugural address. It's just better suited, perhaps, to the political organization of England at the time. And yet, it remains hard to reconcile the standing orating Petrarch with the kneeling Hockleaf. And indeed, the 2,000 lines comprising the first section of Hockleaf's poem underscore the posture this image depicts. These lines form an absurdly out of proportion prologue to the advice that text that follows them. In this prologue, Hockley reports a fictional conversation between himself and an indigent old man, thereby, thereby managing to, to devote considerable space to talking about himself. But instead of simply promoting his qualifications as poet laureate, as we might expect, he devotes a good deal of the space to what may fairly be characterized as whining. I'll talk about this. He describes in detail his day job as a clerk of the Privy Seal, which is a mid-level clerical employee of a bureaucratic office of the royal government. He complains about how physically taxing the work is, how often in the inevitable bribery involved in the position, he seems to get cheated, and above all, how difficult it is to, to obtain payment of a salary, a small sum, he insists, on which his family can barely make ends meet. In other words, he vents his anxieties and frustrations, like any Goshen College faculty member, <laughs> um, like any other cog in the wheel. But what's especially important to note in this case is that at, every time Hockley, at the very time Hockley was writing these lines, Prince Hal, since his father was seriously ill, was acting head of the royal government. And it was the prince's own fiscally conservative policies that in part made Hockley's salary so hard to obtain. In essence, then, a good portion of this absurdly long personalized prologue to an authoritative public advice text consists of the rambling com comments of a somewhat embittered employee taking the opportunity to complain to his employer. In addition, the prologue explains the poet's ultimate motive for writing the work. After complaining to the old man about the difficulty of obtaining his salary, Hockley has the old man suggest as a way to attract the prince's notice the writing of the very poem. And I'll give you this in uh, middle and modern English, and I'll read the, the middle English. Nusin thou me toldest, me lord, the prince is good lord they too. No mastery is it for thee if thou wouldst to be relieved. Wast thou what to do? Writ to him a goodly tale or two, on which he may disport in him be nicked, and his free grasa shall upon thee licked. Did you get that? Read the modern English. <laughs> Hockley's inclusion of this passage just a few lines before the beginning of the advice text would seem to have a rather deflationary effect on the authority of the latter. It would seem to turn the whole book into something like a begging ploy, a preemptive quid pro quo. In effect, Hockley, with this book, has just squeegeed the prince's windshield. And he's got his hand out in expectation of payment. If you got that image. If the second half of this book requires Hockley to pose as poet laureate, the first half reveals him to be a beggar. And yet all poet laureates are, in a way, beggars. As everyone knows, the writing of poetry is not the most financially secure profession. And it never has been. 
In Hockley's and Petrarch's era, before the printing press and copyright laws, poets depended on patrons for economic subsistence, and the best, that is the best paying patron, was the king. Even when the king was not the direct sponsor of a poetic composition, as may or may not have been the case uh, for Hockley's Regiment of Princes, the association of the poet's work with royal power guaranteed broader interest in that work. Who wouldn't want to patronize the poet who also writes for the king? With increased patronage, the poet's work gains wider circulation and broader dissemination. As a result, the poet's claim for timelessness may, in fact, be realized. To put it simply, because Hockley wrote for Prince Hal, we still read Hockley today, or at least I do, and I inflict it on you. And thus, Hockleaf has, in actuality, conquered time. In turn, this very poetic power over time, illustrated by this very moment, as we have seen, elevates the poet to a position parallel rather than subservient to the king. And yet, ironically, this power rests on a very time-bound, historically contingent act of begging. The point that I make in my book is that this paradoxical relationship between poetry and power enters the English poetic tradition right at its very beginning. We can define the beginning of a poetic tradition as that moment in which a poet first explicitly acknowledges writing in the footsteps of a predecessor, a claim for excellence in a particular language. This predecessor doesn't begin the tradition since an originator is, by definition, counter-traditional. Instead, the later poet retroactively instates the predecessor as point of origin, and with this action, invents the tradition. In English literary history, this later poet is Hockleaf, who creates the English poet tra poetic tradition in the very poem that I've been discussing. In particular, on four separate occasions in the Regiment of Princes, and three of these at length, Hockleaf celebrates Chaucer as the English poetic original. Hockleaf, who apparently knew Chaucer, bewails his mentor's death and in so doing depicts him as the father of English poetry. Here is an example of one of these bewailings. But well away so is mean heart a woe that the honor of English tongue is dead, of which he want was han cancel and red. O master dear and father reverent, me master Chaucer, fleur of eloquenza, mirror of fructuous entendement, O universal father in scienza. In a similar eulogy later in the poem, Hockleaf includes an illustration of his master Chaucer, which is here, um, who is pictured, that is Chaucer is pictured, pointing to the lines that describe his own image. In this instance, as well as in the others, Hockleaf's celebration of Chaucer is closely associated, it's right next to it in the text, with, Ho with Hockleaf's address to Prince Hal. Hockleaf brings Chaucer into the poem to fashion his predecessor into the sort of intrinsically authoritative poet who, without begging, was already a universal father in wisdom, and hence worthy of advising kings. Chaucer, whose life overlapped Petrarch's, knew about Petrarch's laureation, but in his own work declined to fashion himself as poet laureate, instead consistently expressing skepticism over the lofty ideas about poetry that Hockley's lines attribute to him. In the Regiment of Princes then, Hockley reconceives the poetry of his recently deceased predecessor as playing the role that Hockley wishes for his own poem. 
Hockleaf projects into the past the very role that he is claiming to occupy in the present. He imagines Chaucer as having sat on the throne of Poet Laureate, and since Chaucer is dead, that throne is now ready for a successor. In so doing, he invents the English poetic tradition, a tradition which to this day is still conceived as having its origin with Father Chaucer. At the beginning of the English tradition, then, lies a claim that poetry matters in the public sphere. And this claim rests on a paradoxical combination of laureate desire and economic abjection. Hockleaf's claim that the timeless wisdom of poetry has something to say to the ruler of the realm cannot be separated from the poet's financial dependence on that very ruler. Let's return to the 20th century now with that in place. It seems clear that Frost, in comparison, was not so directly dependent on JFK. In the modern era, poets are more likely to be supplicants to the publishing industry and academia than presidents. Nonetheless, the recognition granted to him by the American political establishment has surely contributed in crucial ways to his image as the quintessential American poet thus helping to ensure that his poetry has remained appealing to a broad American market. For example, when the Senate in 1950 passed a resolution declaring that Frost's poems, this is a quote, have helped to guide American thought with humor and wisdom, unquote, this act of political power no doubt fulfilled its own prophecy by furthering the sales of Frost's volume of complete poems, which appeared the year before. Similarly, Frost's inauguration speech and his later award of a Congressional Medal of Honor, there's a picture of that moment, Congressional Medal of Honor given to him by the hand of Kennedy, likely helped to make Frost's final vo volume of poems in the clearing one of his best selling, despite also being one of his weakest. When Frost was named Poet Laureate of the United States in 1959, a position then called consultant in poetry to the Library of Congress, he took up the post with enthusiasm, moving to Washington in order to mix among the wielders of political power. Later, a year and a half following his performance at Kennedy's inauguration, Frost embarked on what, uh, upon what must rank as one of the boldest attempts to wield the authority of poetry in the public sphere. With Kennedy's sanction, in the interval between the Bay of Pigs invasion and the Cuban Missile Crisis, Frost traveled to the Soviet Union, held a 90-minute colloquy with Premier Khrushchev, and amidst the tensions created by the construction of the Berlin Wall, recited to a gathering of Soviets his poem, Mending Wall. In this moment, at the end of a long career, Frost, more so than any American poet, embodied the laureate ideal. And yet, in his capacity, as official laureate, he had little, if any, influence on the politicians with whom he mingled. In Russia, his recitation of Mendingwall, as it was in English, had no effect on its audience. And some ill-conceived comments about American wimpiness that Frost offered upon his return from the Soviet Union alienated Kennedy, who subsequently refused to see the poet or hear the report of his journey. Frost died just months later. As did, that's a sad story. As did Hockleaf, Frost based his claim for authority in the public sphere on the timeless wisdom of poetry. But this claim was belied by his actual political marginalization and dependency. Within every poet laureate, there is a beggar. 
And perhaps this is just as well. This is my final slide. For the two political patrons of poetry in this case, Prince Hal and JFK, have characteristics in common uh, less attractive than their youth and their charisma. In particular, both of their administrations were marked by militarism and imperial ambition. After Frost's death, Kennedy remarked, this is his quote, I have never taken the view that the world of politics and the world of poetry are so far apart, a sentiment with which Prince Howe would likely have agreed. But if politics means the expansion of bloody, pointless conflicts in Vietnam or in France, then perhaps, after all, it is better to be a beggar who only wants from power the means to keep writing poetry. From this point of view, Frost's failures, especially his failure to read his august inaugural poem, were gifts of grace. And that's all I have to say. Thank you for coming. You're dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>